0: Hi, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I had the pleasure to talk to Dan Bauck, a writer on modern American bureaucracy, quantification, and sciences of all things human. who is also a professor in the history department at Colgate University. We spoke about his new book from FSG, Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census, and How to Read Them. I'd encourage everyone to read it, and especially you if you're interested in science and technology studies, history of science, the data sciences, how to make the leap from academic publishers to mass market trade presses, and as Dan might put it, all fascinating things shrouded in the cloak of boringness. As you'll hear, this interview is a collaborative effort between myself, Professor Bauck, and students in my course, American Medicine and the World at Vanderbilt University. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is Laura Stark and students in the Vanderbilt course, American medicine in the world. And it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Dan, Dan Bauk. the author of this wonderful new book, Democracies Data, um, just published in 2022 from FSG. Um, And we're talking in December 2022. So there's a lot of um, questions that are especially relevant right now about how to make collective decisions in a country uh, based on numbers. So things like the uh, current Supreme Court case about whether to have a race conscious um, uh, selections uh, admissions committee. And um, we've been through a prior presidency where there was um, attempts to add an additional question about citizenship to the census. So it's a really ripe moment to be thinking about New Mercy as a way to be making collective decisions um, as a democracy, which I feel like is at the heart of this book. Um, but what does specifically is look at the 1940 census, and we learned in the book pretty quickly that um, the census uh, individual sheet, so the individuated information, is uh, not released for 72 years, only the tabulated data. So what you're looking at as a cultural historian in the book is these individual personal data sheets. Um, and what you what you want to say is that there is something important that the individual sheets can tell us um, in a story about the people behind them and about to how to understand the country and the aspirations and also the notions of who matters, who counts and what values are embedded in the census. And um, so one of the things we really appreciate about the book is the, um, that there's a clear Clear showing of the politics of the story um, that's behind the data. But it seems like you had a few options for how to tell this narrative y- yourself. You could have written a polemic, but you didn't. You wrote a really beautiful um, uh, story itself. And you show us all of the hilarious and intrepid um, and brave things that people did in answering the census in, um, in doing the, the, the count. Um, and in using the data as well. So I just wanted to start out by asking you as an author um, about the politics of the story. So in addition to the the data and how you used your evidence of the data sheets itself, for you, what are the politics behind expressing this history as a story or in story form?
1: Thank you for all of that. And that's a, a terrific question. So I did not think that I could get into this topic the way I did Uh, when I, I, the census was not a topic that I thought was worthy of a full book or that one that I could write in a way that would be engaging and I'll leave it to you all to decide if that's something that I succeeded at doing. But what turned it around for me was a set of realizations I had in the archives, as I was looking through uh, some materials there. And the first thing I noticed were these letters being written by enumerators to their bosses in Washington, D.C., complaining about the fact that they weren't being paid properly. They were essentially saying, hey, I think I worked this many hours, I had this many miles, but my paycheck seems to say that. And each one of those individual papers was not particularly interesting. But in in flipping through them, I started to realize, oh, this the set of numbers and even these census sheets that I've so often dealt with they're not just simple recordings of what happened at a particular moment. They are texts that were written by 120,000 kind of random people who wandered around trying to touch every other person in the entire United States, 131 million people, 137 million people, one of those numbers. And that's kind of, almost impossible to believe that someone would have even thought of this like you know what would be a good idea how about every 10 years let's find every single person in the nation and try to like put our finger on them in a given place and of course that isn't exactly how it happens it's like it's a census of households instead of a census really of each individual but that's the basic premise and it's the it's a kind of audacious thing that it took me a little while to to kind of recognize as being as audacious as it was but to to get to your question about the kind of politics then what what really turned me over into thinking about what the story should be and why i should be approaching it was that genealogy as a practice has changed a lot, or at least the way I understand it has changed a lot over the last hundred years. So as a historian thinking, when I thought about genealogical practices, I thought about the Daughters of the American Revolution, the people who prevented Marian Anderson from singing at Constitution Hall in the 1930s. So a a white supremacist organization, in a way, trying to uphold racial hierarchies. But that isn't what genealogical practice is today. I saw this in all the libraries that would go to work in, that people from many different walks of life are coming to these census records and using them to tell their own family stories. And so seeing that and thinking about how the the neat thing about the census is precisely that it does attempt, it's trying to, to get everybody and include everybody in it made me think that this was a good topic. But then... If that's the ethos I'm starting with, the sense that the thing about the census that makes it worth thinking about is that it is a endeavor to make every person count. Then my recounting of that story should also try to honor that principle. And just as the census itself fails at meeting its own principles quite often. I'm sure my story as well fails in meeting that quite often but that is the the kind of driving goal and so i think that's the the politics behind it
0: one of the um the ways that the story starts off is by looking at the people who are actually writing the questions to go on the census in the first place so it's nice because you're you're following this arc of almost the sheet itself from its construction to it going out Um, in these people's hands to the doorsteps and into the tabulating rooms where people are actually doing all of the the assembling and then out into the world for various um, policy uses and and beyond. Um, And in the first chapter, you show us the March 1939 meeting where um, people got together, but not just any people, a particular set of elite business people. You have a wonderful joke about Jeff Bezos. I just have to flag that. Um, as well as uh, academics and professional statisticians and representatives from labor unions. And you show us the negotiations over what gets put in and what gets taken out. And it hadn't quite um, registered how much of a material problem this is because there's only a limited number of lines on the census sheet itself. So because the space is a limited resource, the questions you can ask. And you show the shift from um, the 1920s to um, uh, fixation on immigration um, and immigration policy and citizenship and how that shifted by 1940 to, to real care about um, fertility. So you show us the connection between the people in the room and their eugenics. Um, commitments, so the concern about fertility and having white people reproduce, and also um, around income, so the first census in which a question about income was asked. And so one of the things you really nicely do is you use in this um, chapter the, the um, description and the scene of this conference room to show how there were literally only men at the table and only white men. But in the audience, so people there listening, one of the, the spies from the labor union was Margaret Scattergood. Um, and so Heather, there was officially um, some women, some non-white people in the room, but they certainly were not at the table making the decision. But you bring Margaret Scattergood back in chapter three, when you're 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 talking about you use the um, the example of how um, partnership marriage um, relationships and households were thought of in very normative ways, and you use the idea of what counts and what is a partner to to show us how the census is really normative. That is, it imposes ideas about right and wrong ways of living, so we can see a really clear example about what is valued and what, what's considered to have worth. So I wonder if you could just tell us the story of Margaret Scattergood and um, how the figuration of her way of living just didn't fit in to the categories and what that teaches us more broadly.
1: So Margaret Scattergood, who has a terrific name, first showed up in these 1939 records, which themselves I didn't think I was going to find. They were one of these last-minute archival surfacing materials where I I knew that there had been some kind of a gathering of people to figure out how these questions, what they would be, but I didn't really know what happened there, and was in my very last trip to the archives before... I stopped going to the archives before the pandemic shut down the archives that I was able to find this and find these in the, uh, in the records of the census director and start to piece this together. But so Margaret Scattergood there was attending as the representative of the American Federation of labor, which would be, there were two main labor organizations, the American Federation of labor, which was for the trade unions, the kind of the the more skilled sort of labor unions. And then there was the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. They've now uh, formed the AFL-CIO together, but at this moment, they were two distinct bodies. Margaret Scattergood was a researcher for that group, and she had been sent to D.C. in lieu of her boss, the, the president of the organization, to give some of labor's views to be amongst the people who would try to help contribute to the questions. And so, for instance, labor, I think we'll probably get to this, was one of the groups that wanted there to be this income question attached because they were interested in figuring out what is the standard of living of workers throughout the United States, information they could use to try to fight for improving that standard of living or to use in wage negotiations, that sort of thing. So Margaret Scattergood, though, turned out to have an interesting Uh, story my history lab a group of students who I was working with we sat down together because I wanted to make data portraits of all of the question men all of these people who had been in that room Um, but that's to say I very seldom use photographs in the book I instead want people to be represented the way that they are represented by their data in the census record so to do that we would comb through census records, looking for all of the people who had attended that Washington DC meeting and then pulling out their census records, cutting them out, pasting them all together. In doing that, we find out that Margaret Scattergood was living in a home in Virginia, what turned out to be from other records, a quite nice home in Virginia. The head of her household was listed as Florence Thorne and this person is listed as head. Florence Thorne is then uh, 57 years old. She's white, has four years of college education, and she is listed as the assistant editor of a labor union. Next comes Margaret Scattergood, and then after that, May Stotts-Allen. Uh, May Stotts-Allen is listed as maid, and she, in this case, so is kind of dict- uh, indicated by her status as a servant in this household. Margaret Scattergood is listed as a partner. So this was not the first time I had encountered a partner. And so I now knew a little bit about what, what that meant for me. When I first heard the term, it was a real mystery. I knew that often when we talk about partners, a partner might be a partner in a business, a partner could be a partner in crime. Uh, but more often than not, partner was something we had come to use to think about intimacy, people we live with, it might be a synonym for uh, people who are in romantic relationships, it might be a way of indicating um, all kinds of ways in which people end up living together. And so the question, the obvious question was, is that what's happening here between Margaret Scattergood and Florence Thorne? Now you might, your listener, say, Wow, what business is that? if that is yours? Uh, and indeed, it's not. It, and right, you know why why should I be trying to pry intimate lives of these people intimate lives of these people? And to some degree, i'm I'm not uh, all of these census sheets, one of the things I think is most fun about them, most interesting about them, is that they're full of all these questions and mysteries where you you start to dig even a little bit in and you think, like, I wonder what their lives were like together, right? What were, Florence and Margaret and May, like it, it probably they had fights, sometimes they were mean to one another, sometimes they were like doing things that they were really enjoying one another's company, Some of them, they pay, one of them was paid for the work in that household, They, one of them was the boss of the other in that household. A number of them were bosses of others in the household, right? So it's like, there's all these really funny, interesting dynamics, none of which are captured in the census record, or very few of which can actually be captured in the census record. And so we're left then to our own imaginations to kind of try and think what's happening in this household. The, the more pointed question, the more pointed mystery that I was investigating was what does it mean for one person to be labeled as a partner to another? And there, it turns out we can think of this as a trick or a tool that the Census Bureau would allow enumerators and people being counted to use to explain a way of living in a family in a household that otherwise didn't fit what they were assuming a household would look like, that a household would be a, a guy as the head of the household, a woman who was that guy's wife, literally listed his wife on the punch card, that's the only option, there's no spouse or anything else It's assuming a heterosexual patriarchal couple that then there might be spaces for children and some other relatives. But that's the assumption of what a household is going to look like. Many people, for all kinds of different reasons, don't live in households that look like that. And so I understand all of those as essentially queer households, queer in the sense that they don't fit within a, a, a very narrow definition of what a straight household is supposed to look like and the partner is one of a handful of different tools that either the enumerator or the person being counted could use to try to like actually fit these people on this form because they had to fill something out the census bureau required you write something in that category of what's your relationship to this person and if those if there's not like an a, a release valve for the steam to come out, it would explode because everyone would be just like, I don't know, we don't, there's nothing for me here. I can't do anything here. So the partner is one of those kinds of release valves that allows the whole numeration system to keep going. It's preserved then for us for 72 years later, but it is truly a release valve just to keep the whole operation going the machine chugging along because by the time these then are all sent to DC Turned into punch cards sent off to be turned into official statistical tables, all of those partners disappear. They are swept into a larger umbrella category of the lodger. And none of the fact that all these partners exist is not a fact for 72 years. It only becomes a fact again later as people start to look at these newly released manuscript records and can start to ask these questions again, like, oh, Something more interesting was happening here than maybe was initially suggested by what the government ultimately printed,
0: yeah, the transitioning from the the partner to the way they're absorbed, and then you can um, recreate or um, resuscitate the partners. Um, is just such an amazing story about how the data works. And as you show in other chapters of the book, what's revealed and what's concealed, this chapter has one of the most insightful readings of the individuated data uh, as well, in which you show how um, the people who are designated as partners or the households with partners, they cluster. And so they're not evenly distributed and so my immediate reaction was, oh, okay, this is some sort of cognitive bias where you have enumerators who, are just, who just like have this the same sort of shrug. They're like, well, I don't know what's happening here. So I'm just gonna fill this in and I keep doing it. But what you show is that um, you use this to show exactly that the census has these normative assumptions built into it so that it's exactly um, marginalized people um, who in the sort of circular way, they're both marginalized and tend to be in non-normative communities where they're dependent on each other because they're marginalized. And you refer to Sadia Hartman's um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments as a great example of this. And so there's good reason that partners are clustered because it would be a group of people just living in a house together um marginalized and so dropped by many of the institutions and government programs, and so dependent on each other, so I just really um, I found that to be a really insightful reading and such a great example also of the normativity built into the questions um, themselves um, and you you show that in these doorstop nego- these uh, door stoop negotiations when an, an enumerator would actually go to a house, um, there was always some sort of power dynamic. And power isn't necessarily a bad thing. We know what matters is just how power is distributed, whether it's um, uneven or equally distributed, how it's flowing. And so you're, you use the example of um, how people's names were recorded as an example of um, the power and the negotiation. So what it meant for um, Black communities to be able to use their initials and saying that this this is my name, um, and other ways that names were negotiated. And you introduce us also to the, this really wonderful, rich vocabulary of the census. so things like padding and curbstoning, um to show us also that that the enumerators themselves, they they had interests. and um they were. The the questions about um, actually recording individual names was partly to make sure that the enumerators weren't making things up, but it also turned out to be a really important negotiation over identity. And that really mattered a lot for the people who were being counted. And here, I'm gonna hand the mic over to Max um, to ask a question on behalf of his group. Take it away, Max.
1: Thank you, Dr. Stark. Yeah. So on that note, and also thinking about um, your second chapter of the book um, called Names and Negotiations, I'm reminded of one of our class readings in which uh, Joan Castle introduced the concept of Habitus. And so Habitus is defined by Castle as an embodied social structure that affects one's identity. So based on this definition, do you think that a connection exists between a person's name and the same individual's sense of Habitus? Ooh, again, some sophisticated theory in this podcast all right uh so i am going to talk my way into this because that's too smart a question for me here's my way of approaching it the i would not have picked the name as the place to think about politics or negotiation if i was just coming up with this on my own i would have said names yeah those are just the things you got right like that's that is not the site that's going to be contentious something like the partner we were just talking about strikes me as much more closely related to something about like we're going to be fighting about this or the race category a few uh, columns over yikes right here we're going to see a lot of politics names would not have struck me as the place in which this is going to happen it was in a poem by Langston Hughes that I came to the name as the thing that might in fact be a place where we could understand politics. So Hughes, now I know from the census, didn't actually talk to an enumerator in 1940. He was apparently out of the house. It was someone else, one of his roommates, who answered the questions. Hughes also interestingly lived next door to a person who was enumerated and who had a name very similar to the name of the person who's the the character, the leading character in this poem I'm about to talk about. So there might've been some interesting influence there. So he writes a series of poems about Alberta K. Johnson, Madam Johnson, that's madam to you. It's one of her reframes throughout these, these poems. And she's often in these poems encountering bureaucracies, encountering modern institutions that are trying to, you know, control her life, put her in her place, uh, sometimes give her access to phone calls, but sometimes then make her pay for those phone calls and make her try and take children away from her, do some terrible things and some good things and some weird things. But in all of these, we see Hughes thinking with her about her experience with these different bureaucracies. And one of those poems is called Madam and the Census Taker. And it begins with something along the lines of uh, the uh, census day taker came around and wanted my name to put it down. One day, the census taker came around and wanted my name to put it down, something along those lines. Wanted my name to put it down, right, to write it down, but to put it down also has a, this other meaning, right, to like, to mock my name, to say bad things about it. Uh, and Alberta K. Johnson, what a good citizen she is. She's giving her name in direct directory style. She says, Johnson, Alberta K., I, but then he didn't want to write my name that way, something along these lines. right. And so we start the the actual source of the fight it turns out to be is not a plausible fight. It's unlikely that an enumerator would have fought uh, Alberta K. Johnson over writing down K. They write down K all the time in these census records. But what what I saw um Hugh getting at for us was, look, whatever you might think is happening here when a census enumerator comes to the store, There are these differences. There's at one level, sometimes people just don't want anybody coming to their door and trying to ask them questions. But then who that person is and the way that they try to take advantage or use this position that they have can lead to all kinds of bad feelings, can lead to people fighting with one another about how it is they're going to be represented. And the name, it turns out, is a, like a fruitful way to start to get at that set of questions because in the end we don't know why a person is named the way they're named in a given census we only know what in the end an enumerator wrote down so what we're seeing is the enumerator's representation of an individual we're not seeing even their own presentation of sen- of self or identity it might be in there right so is there is this habitus it's at the best we're seeing one attempt at representing an identity but we're definitely not seeing a full presentation of self uh, or i shouldn't say we're definitely not seeing we're probably not seeing a full presentation so we have no way of knowing if we're seeing a full presentation of embodied self instead of we're seeing one attempt at two people each with their own habitus uh, work in the world, playing certain roles and then like kind of negotiating with one another and landing with this sort of uh, indication on a census sheet.
0: the data are always from a a perspective from the enumerator's perspective and the idea that it's sort of a a super, the veneer of a person as opposed to their embodiment in the world seems really important. And you show us in the book that there's politics um, all over the the production of the census. And um, you move on then to show us the politics behind uh, the patronage system and the favors in figuring out who would actually get hired as an enumerator. And that was pretty stunning to see um, how people were wrangling over just um uh, fighting over the jobs when when people needed them um and you also sh- uh do a really um, thoughtful and, I mean, for us anyway, um, insightful job to show us how to read for silences um, in a chapter that's especially looking at the white supremacist logics that are built into the census. So earlier you show us how um, with curbstoning, so enumerators actually making people up and the strategies that the framers had for um, making sure they could tell if an enumerator was fibbing or something like this, that there had been um, overcounts. There'd been the invention of Black Americans in asylums, which created this health data claiming that there was a disproportionate number of Black Americans um, with mental illness, which was then used falsely to justify um, forced labor, slavery. Um, in previous censuses. But then you're showing us how with the 1940 census, there was a really live concern about undercounts and legitimate concerns about undercounts of African-American and Mexican-Americans and other oppressed groups in the United States. Um, And so here, I'm gonna hand the mic over to Leith to ask, um, ask a question on behalf of his group. Hi, Professor Book. Um, thank you so much for writing your book. It was a really great culmination of research for us to learn more about like, US data. Uh, you mentioned race as a really important topic throughout the book, given the context of the 1940 census. Uh, we had Jim Crow segregation and the China- Japanese exclusion camps. Uh, you mentioned specifically that white people were given higher ranking positions within the Bureau, the Census Bureau itself. And that people of color, specifically Black people, were significantly undercounted during this time. Could you explore with us your understanding of how underrepresentation of of minorities at higher levels of the Census Bureau contributed to inadequate counting of these communities, and if there are any conclusions you can make about how this undercounting impacted the Black community specifically?
1: Okay, yeah. So, Right, that's a that's a big question and a really important one. One way we could dig into it is by thinking about what difference it made when there were black researchers working for the Census Bureau. So, when we look to the nineteen tens, it turns out there were in a segregated Washington D.C. and a segregated Census Bureau, there were some really uh, well educated. Really innovative, um, uh, really kind of clever black clerks working in the Census Bureau in a segregated office, and they went about looking through past census records, uh, census tables from the end of the 19th century, from the 1870s post Civil War on, and they would they use what what now are taken to be quite sophisticated methods to track whether or not the number of African-Americans that they were seeing in the census records changing from decade to decade seemed to be in line with what they understood to be the rates at which African-Americans were being born and the rates at which they were dying and the rates at which they were moving in inside and outside and out of various places. So we would now call this demographic analysis. They did a species of this in the 1910s And these clerks then produced a report showing that there had been very significant undercounts of African-Americans in the 1870s and in the 1890s. That was published. It goes out into the world. And as far as we can tell, very little happens as a result of that being published. But it is there and it wouldn't have existed had it not been for the fact that there were those Black researchers working for the Census Bureau. In 1922, a mathematician named Kelly Miller, who's a professor at Howard, goes having read this work. Probably being he's in Washington D.C. as well. He's probably talking with many of these clerks. I mean, and, and to say clerk, we this is not a it's not a high rank, but this is a very skilled position. These are people doing really serious work, and I don't, I don't clerk could you could take the wrong impression. So this professor of mathematics now uses some of the same methods and makes an argument that in 1920, the census again has significantly undercounted African-Americans. This time, Miller is a very prominent black public intellectual. He publishes in Scientific Monthly, a major magazine journal. And so the Census Bureau this time has to respond to a kind of outsider criticizing them. And they essentially say, eh, no, we don't think you're right. Their, their arguments are not particularly strong, but they feel like they have to at least try to, to, to um, push back against this. It's only after the 1940 census, in 19, 1947, that Daniel Price publishes this, but after the 1940 census, a, um, a white sociologist publishes a paper based on comparisons looking at the rates at which young African-American men and young and and just young men generally in the United States are being counted by the census versus those that were being counted by the Selective Service, the draft, as World War, War is beginning. World War Two was beginning, and it compares those two numbers and determines that yet again there was a significant undercount of the whole population, but especially of African Americans. All right. So what's the like? What's the takeaway of all of these different stories? I guess one way to say it is we we wouldn't know about these undercounts at all had there not been Black researchers working for the Census Bureau. But because there was this starkly segregated system in which Black researchers had a, a, a ceiling to which they could not cross, and because of the fact that then the people who were running the Bureau and who were responsible for organizing the entire account, because they were uniformly white, I think that... That means there was a, a, an interest that prevented that very those real discoveries from having an impact on actually than trying to change the policies or change the ways in which the, the system worked. Now, so does that mean that had there been um, black representatives in the among the question men or in the census director, would that have fixed all these problems? Probably not, because the problems are not purely about how the Census Bureau runs, undercounts are tied much more to a whole variety of different ways in which we understand how the inequities in our society. I have a friend who works for the leadership council, uh, Mita Anand, and I, I would love to steal this line from her that the Census Bureau, census is a report card for the United States. And she means it as a report card, not because it tells us, not because of the ways it positively tells us things about the country, but the fact that it doesn't count people is in its own way a diagnosis of some of the problems in our society. If people had stable homes, if people were all valued equally in our society, we'd probably be able to count them all much more effectively than we can today. And so when we when you look and see these significant undercounts, that's evidence partly about things happening in the Bureau, but it's also evidence, for instance, the, the, the largest undercounts were in Washington, D.C. and Not coincidentally, Washington, D.C. didn't have representation in Congress. It had no person who would gain or lose by making sure there was a full count of people in Washington, D.C. Therefore, Washington, D.C. was undercounted and Washington, D.C. had a lot of Black residents who were, as a result, undercounted at a very high rate there. That's a structural procedure. Structural factor doesn't have anything to do with who's directing the Census Bureau. And then the final thing I'll say is we see the Census stop acting primarily as a tool for enforcing white supremacy only because of the move of other kinds of political groups and social movements in the fifties and sixties and seventies it's external politics that can then say we're going to continue to ask race questions for instance but now we will use those race questions we'll change the way that they're defined and we'll you know to torque them, turn them around so they can be used to fight against discrimination and the legacies of discrimination rather than to continue to enforce it.
0: Yeah, that's great to show um, how the same um, concepts can be used but the way the questions are asked and who um, who is able to be at the table to define the questions can be used to different ends whether it's for justice or for, for more oppression. Um, and you, you show that at all the the meandering roots of the census sheet that there's power being negotiated and always also at the doorstep. Um, And the issue of the 1940 census being the first one in which income, the question about um, personal income was asked really um, uh, ruffled a lot of feathers that year. And you talk through, that some of the problems and what I guess James Scott would call weapons of the week that people used in order to dodge and avoid as answering questions in any straightforward way about their income. Um, and this is especially in chapter six, uh, people's strategies of refusal. And so that chapter seemed both to be a commentary on privacy, which we later see um, uh, completely violated with data being handed over to the Secret Service, Um, Um, But also that this is a big commentary on capitalism. So what it means to value people according to their incomes um, and thinking through Michelle Murphy's work on economization of life, how people are valued to the extent that they are figured as contributing to a growth-based economy. Um, So basically your economic productivity. So we're interested in um, sort of hearing more of your thoughts about the income question, which was the real, sounds like it was the real issue with the 1940 census. And from here, I'm gonna hand it over to Lainey. Yeah, hi, Dr. Boog. I really enjoyed your book, it was really insightful. And um, as Professor Stark said, um, in chapter six, you mentioned people's fear of reporting their income due to potential discrimination from the government. And in our class, we learned about valuation, which is the concept that connects
1: the way that people are valued to the way that they're governed. And so um, historically, can you kind of explore the stakes of valuing people based on their
0: income, both for the government and for the people answering the questions?
1: Yeah. One of the moments when this really jumped out at me, right? So I'm, I'm gonna approach your question by not, as a as a historian, I start with examples of things of how people in the past experience things rather than coming with my own sense of like what it is that like is the right way to think about valuation. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of what I learned from these records of how these people in the 1940s seemed to experience this question and to value and think about this question of evaluation. And so there were these letters that were sent to a senator who was critiquing these questions. So, I mean, for your listeners, one part of the background is it was an election year. So, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was up for election as president and a Republican senator from New Hampshire decided to use the census, which was happening in the same year, as a platform by which to try to take some dings at roosevelt and try to attack him and undermine his candidacy and one of the ways he does that is by going on the radio ton remember the radio at this point is the way you get a mass audience and he gives these big orations talking about how what a terrible invasion of privacy the census is going to be and in particular he does that by focusing on these income questions and then he then continues to, to, to do this over and over again And he starts saying thousands of people thousands of people are writing me letters of, in with just such anger about these income questions and i re- listened to this and i of course assumed that he's lying he must be lying you know there's probably like 10 people who did this sort of thing but he you know who know who would know so i went to his archives which are, are held at Dartmouth college and it turned out he kept a lot of these letters and there were thousands of them like he got a lot of a lot a lot of letters um I I took photos diligently of an awful lot of them, although probably not still all of them, turned them into these PDFs that are thousands and thousands of images long. And I brought them back here to Colgate uh, where I was working with my history lab and we were pouring through all of these, these letters and also trying to kind of find them, the people who had written them in the census to kind of see especially when they would sometimes say like, mm, I'm not going to tell any enumerator this question about my income. We're like, oh, I wonder if you did. And we could go and try and find them and see see exactly what had happened. But so one set of these letters just look like a, a packet of letters. They're all kind of stuck together. But one of my researchers, Emily Karavich, went and found these people in the census records, realized they were all from New Hampshire, and that they all... Worked in the same office together. And the office they worked in was so one was listed as like inspector of the poor. I think that was what got Emily interested. She's like, wow, what is an inspector of the poor? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. And we kept looking, and it turned out all of them had these, these kind of similar job titles. They worked for a town, and they were essentially the local welfare office. Like they were the people who decided who was needy and therefore needed to get some money and other support from the local government. That meant they, speaking to valuation, their professional life was going and finding poor people and making those poor people prove to them that they were poor enough, that they needed this help. And one of the things I think that we understand about thinking about valuation is for them to, to have somebody from the government come ask you about your finances and to be forced to reveal that information, they had learned through their work was to lower one's status. It was to admit to a need or admit to being in a position of desperation that they, that they didn't want to be associated with. So when they're writing this letter saying, oh no, we can't have this income question, they're, they're bringing to that sense of repulsion from this question all of that work life and all of that, this the social status that's built into this question, the idea of like some people admit their incomes to the government and some people don't. So that there are other answers to that question, but that's just one way in which looking at these records, you can start to, to feel people, to have them reveal to you what it is that valuation meant. Because the, there is no one thing that valuation means. Valuation will, will, will mean different things. Like sometimes... You know, you can think of a person getting a raise, and that might be like, "Oh, look at this terrible job that I have, and now somebody's just going to give me more money to do it." And they all they care about is my labor. Uh, but most of the time, you get a raise, and you're like, oh, "I got a raise! This is awesome! I am so valuable!" That's a great point. Um, and it's, right, so like we we see people have like very different responses to this act of having their lives valued, uh, and it's a really in, in a perpetually interesting question to figure out. How and why do they have those those distinct ways of understanding and thinking about that evaluation? The final thing I'll say on this point, uh, because I know that Laura, you brought up this the Michelle Murphy thing. So in this this terrific book, The Economization of Life, which is one of my favorites, Murphy is talking in particular, I think, about how. People in this period and afterwards in the United States and then also in Bangladesh are starting to understand that if they control and shape and manipulate population, who gets born, whether people have access to, are allowed to give birth, all these sorts of really intimate questions, by controlling those things, they can then like turn a knob and turn up their GDP, like Increase the production, make the their nation suddenly more wealthy by by kind of trying to t- tweak, control population. Now, what's happening here with an income question could be that like that's one possible way of understanding what's happening here, um, but Emily Merchant in this uh, a recent book that's also really terrific called Building the Population Bomb resists the idea that population, just the concept of population or thinking about population or these kinds of statistics is inherently going to lead to that kind of an outcome. And I think what what I've learned from her work and what the way I think about this is that this is much more an example of what she would call planning for rather than planning. That in, The idea is not to shape the population, but to use very good data about a population so that you can then try to as a government better meet its needs and so that when the here the reason that the federal government and the labor unions want to have this income data is not because they're going to some of them do there are right and we know in the room there are some eugenicists who do want to control exactly who's having who's giving birth uh, and think about how to increase how to encourage white people to have more kids white white rich people especially to have more kids but a lot of people in that room are particularly concerned in knowing how much money are people making so that then they can push for programs that will allow the federal government for the first time to guarantee that people should have jobs that pay enough money for them to be able to live some people are pushing for that other people in the labor unions are pushing again for trying to be able to make it so that then workers will have what they need for them and their families to survive so there's so there is a um, I think there's some some more interesting stuff happening in this question about what's there being an income question and not just that. I think that critique of Michelle Murphy's is part of it, but not the entire story.
0: That's a really great point, uh, showing the distinction between Emily Merchant and the uh, Michelle Murphy reading of what's being what's happening when people when uh, governments are paying attention to to money and people's income. Um, so you're you're showing how. Um, Uh, numbers and quantification can be used in all sorts of um, really beautiful and just ways, um, and not only exclusively in oppressive ways, but certainly in those ways as well. And here to wrap us up, I'm gonna hand the floor over to Sarah.
1: Thank you, Professor Stark. So um, switching gears a little bit, in the last chapter of your book, you write that, quote, you, dear reader, have likely experienced a few moments of shock, surprise, or even revulsion in this book's extensive accounting of some of the stories behind the numbers," end quote. In class, something that we've talked a lot about is the idea that inequalities and disparities often come from structural barriers that disenfranchise large groups of people. So with that, I was wondering if there were any structurally oppressive elements of the census that you found to be particularly shocking or surprising when completing the research for your book. Yes. <laughs> no, all right. Uh, let let me give you let me give you a full answer. I mean that that is so one I've already alluded to when I was looking at this question of how it is that people are counted and undercounted, i I wasn't sure what to expect. So, for instance, I was looking at the Jim Crow South and thinking there, well, this is a situation in which there is forcible segregation of races, in which we understand that this is white-only rule. We might think, I, I wondered, are we going to see a, an increased undercount of African Americans in the context of this really these like truly terrible oppressive conditions? It turns out it's kind of the opposite to some degree. So um, there is a significant undercount of African Americans, for instance, in Mississippi. Uh, but it's the lowest undercount of all the other states, and it's one of the most oppressive situations. And that's not a paradox so much as it's a way of trying to to think about how both the there was an enormous incentive for people who were being for white Congresspeople who were going to be elected, and whose seats in the House were predicated on the the counting of black voters, who then wouldn't be allowed to vote. So they had a very strong incentive to try to make sure that everyone was counted, especially because then they knew they would get both the political power of those people being counted, but would not actually have to obey any of the desires or any of the or pay attention to the political power of those individuals who are being counted. So that's there's a kind of a moment in which we see the the kind of the complicated and sort of unexpected, at least for me ways in which those structural uh, inequities might play out in a complicated system like the census in ways that we might not otherwise otherwise think about. The, the other way I'll answer to kind of close this off is not a form of structural inequity that is um, kind of focused on race, even though there's a lot of those that we might look at, but one of the things that I just had not thought about at all before I began writing this book was the idea uh, that the kind of the fundamental thing that the census does. And the reason there's a census in the first place in is that the constitution was set up such that as the United States changed each state, its say, its power, its number of votes, in Congress, its number of votes in the electoral college were supposed to shift, are supposed to shift as the population numbers change in each of those places. And it turned out that for most of the history of the United States, and right now about half of the history of the United States uh, from today's perspective, as the population of the United States grew, so too did the number of people who represented the population of the United States. So the House of Representatives continuously grew over the years. Sometimes it would go down or a few years where it went down. For the most part, it would continue to grow as the number of people who were in the United States also grew so that there was a decreasing amount of representation because it it seldom grew as fast as the population grew. But there was some sense that like, oh, there's more people. We're going to need more people to represent us. From the 19th uh, tens on now. We've had exactly the same number of represent- representatives, and we. Can, I won't get into the details of exactly how or why that happens, but essentially, we now have an automated system which is necessary to make this happen, so that at the end of every census, the numbers are produced saying how many people there are in each of these states, and that that's sent off to uh, be run through a simple, simple algorithm that determines how many representatives each state has. The purpose of that is a fair distribution of representatives. And I'm not saying that isn't fair. What isn't, what I think the problem is, the fundamental inequity here, is that it's limiting our representation. It It is c- creating a unnecessary and unnatural, I think, cap on the size of the House of Representatives such that the, the number of people in the United States has tripled, but we still have just the same number of representatives, uh, which in a democracy strikes me as a, its own particular kind of structural inequity that has been built into the system.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, to think about the implications for things that are infinite resources or finite resources or things that are constructed as finite resources, but actually don't need to be that way at all when thinking about the distribution of of, um, material resources and also just political power. Yeah, Um, Dan Bauk, thank you so much. Your book, Democracy's Data, is really fantastic. We're grateful to you for talking with us about it. And I just wanna close um, with your own words because so much of this book is really moving and you deal so um, humanely and humorously with uh, people's stories, both the enumerators, the framers, and the people who are being counted. But you write that um, these data, that they're not just numbers, they're texts too that we can use to better understand ourselves, our political systems and our societies. We just have to learn how to read them. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you everybody. This has been a lot of fun.